So Ephesians 5, 13, 3 through 14, let's read it together. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, Peter Parker, Tony Stark, Natalia Romanova, Steve Rogers, Bruce Banner, Wanda Maximoff. What do all these names have in common? Anybody? They're superheroes, right? Yeah, absolutely, they're superheroes, but that's not the answer, actually, that I was looking for. You are absolutely right that they are superheroes, but the one thing that bonds them together even more than that, that they are, yes, individuals who are superheroes, but they are individuals who are living double lives. The lives that they live at one point is different than who they are as uh, the superhero. Clark Kent is the reporter for the planet, but when uh, trouble hits Metropolis, he runs into a phone booth and becomes who? Superman. Yeah. Oh, you guys are great. Um, Tony Stark, he's a wealthy inventor, but when trouble comes, who does he become? Anyone? Iron Man. Yeah, you guys are great. Bruce Banner, he's just a scientist and a doctor, but when he gets really, really angry, who does he become? The Incredible Hulk, yeah. Well, and Bruce Wayne, well, I don't think anybody really knows what Bruce Wayne does, but um, he's just an uber-rich man with way too much time on his hands. But when there's crime in Gotham City, who does he become? Batman, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the city light shines and the bat signal is, is brought out and he goes from being Bruce Wayne and then becomes... Uh, Batman. So every one of these characters are living a double life in the sense that by day, they're normal people. They have normal jobs. On the surface, if you were to meet them, you would think that there's nothing uncommon or, or odd about these people. Uh, but uh, they are hiding a secret 
They are living out an identity that they don't want anyone to know about. And uh, they'll go to great lengths to make sure that no one does find out about their, uh, their identity. In fact, a lot of the, uh, the plot of some of these superhero uh, stories, and, and especially the movies, is not just the action of them saving the world or the universe or whatever it is, but it's them trying to cover up who they are so that no one can know who their true identity is. Now, we have come to expect that uh, and accept it, that from a human character that lives out a double life as a superhero to go out and save communities and, and the world. However, in the church, well, living a double life only hurts. It only damages. It, it destroys individual lives and marriages and families and communities and churches and the reputation of Christ. And yet many of us are living double lives. Perhaps without even knowing it. We live double lives when the person who comes here on a Sunday morning is, the different, is completely different than when they get back in the car and go home. Or it's completely different from the person that they are on Monday morning when they enter the workplace. We live double lives when the Christian that we claim to be in public is not who we are uh, when we are alone. We live double lives when uh, we claim to be freed from sin and yet are ensnared by the uh, patterns of secret sin. And unlike the uh, heroes in the Marvel or DC universe who hide their, in their identities in order to protect them so that they can save people and make the world uh, a better place. Christians who are living double lives only hold and hide their behaviors and uh, their identities to protect themselves from shame or embarrassment or judgment and possibly um, to shield those that they love from that shame and embarrassment as well. In the Christian life, there is no room for double lives. When we received Christ, we were given a new identity in him. The, the old is dead and gone. It no longer exists. The new identity in Christ, which is rooted in holiness and in righteousness, is meant to take over every aspect of our uh, being. However, that old person in us doesn't die easily. Though we are redeemed by Christ and we are made righteous in the sight of God, uh, having been given the righteousness of Christ through faith, those old patterns and those old thought processes and those old desires have uh, half-lives that want nothing more than to reside in us again. And that old person doesn't care if they take over the full entity of who we are or even if they have a little piece and partial resonance within us. The enemy is just fine with us being a public Christian if we can be a private pagan. So today, we're going back into the letter of uh, Ephesians. We're continuing to examine what it means to be a biblical church. And for the past few weeks, Paul has been teaching that if we want to be uh, a church that, uh, that Jesus wants us to be, that it begins at the individual level. 
In the past couple of messages, we've uh, sort of gone with the, the theme that as individual Christians, we need to grow up. Uh, last week, we learned that we need to take up our new identity, and today that we're going to find that we need to wake up and be who we are. The dangers of living a double life are, are very plain and before us, and, and once again, we need to be reminded of the importance of working toward who we are in Christ Jesus. And we can do that in two ways. I only have two points for you today. And the first one is, is that we need to abandon our former lifestyle and behaviors. We need to abandon it. You know, TV sitcoms are not written like they used to be. Uh, it used to be that every episode was sort of um, a one and done, and, and there wasn't really anything adding to the plot of the story of the show. So you could uh, miss an episode of Home Improvement and know that next week you can just jump right on in that same time, and, and it, you're not, you haven't missed anything. Tim Taylor is still going to do stupid things with tools, and there's no overall plot with it. It's not that way anymore. Uh, now individual uh, episodes of things are embedded into this whole meta, uh, this, uh, meta narrative that if you miss one week, you might miss critical details in the development of, uh, of the plot. And uh, if you just jump in like you could a soap opera, uh, you might be totally wrong on what is going on in this season. And so when we approach a text like we are today, uh, it can be rather difficult. Uh, it can be tempting to read it like an old sitcom, like our section today is completely independent from everything else around it in the letter. But we have to remember that it's much more like how shows are written today. Our passage is not independent from everything else in the letter, but it is very much connected to everything that we've already seen here. If we take our passage today simply uh, by itself, we'll do two things. Uh, well, three things, really. Yes, three things. We'll learn very quickly that we can't do it. Second, we're going to get discouraged uh, that we can't do it. And third, we're going to then see Christianity as only a religion of rule keeping and doing this and doing that that no one can keep. So we have to remember that what Paul tells us to do here and tells us to stop doing this, do that, put on this, put on that. It is all within the context of this entire letter. And so if we want to get to the bottom of our responsibility here to abandon our old ways, or as the text said last week, take off the old self, we have to understand why and how. Um, and we do that by backing up a couple of verses in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So these, these things that we're going to get to here in a second have to be understood in light of God's mercy. We are his children. Uh, back in chapter 1, it said that he predestined us for adoption as sons. And the benefits of adoption as uh, uh, of sons, according to chapter 1, are redemption and forgiveness and grace and knowledge of him. And now uh, he begins in verse 3 of our chapter with a not necessarily a list of do's and don'ts. This is a list of family values. That if we are God's children, if we have been redeemed by him, if he is our heavenly father in Christ by, uh, by, grace, through, uh, by grace through faith, 
then these are qualities of the family that we ought to strive to take on. And that's why Paul says abstaining from these things is proper among saints. So what are these things? There are six specific things that he mentions. And these are not brought up just because they're cardinal vices in Ephesus, but really they are uh, cardinal vices in any culture throughout time. And as we go through, you'll see how that is. He says, but sexual immorality, verse 3, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The word that Paul uses here for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornaya, which is where we obviously get the word pornography from. Uh, but it's not referring to just images. Rather, the word is referring to any kind of sexual behavior or orientation that deviates from sexual relations in a marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Anything outside of that context, premarital, uh, extramarital, homosexual, perverted sex, is not even to be named among believers in Christ. The same is true for the, the use of pornography or graphic romance novels or, or self-sexual exploration. Even orientations such as homosexuality and transgenderism are, are forms of this banner of pornaya and are not proper among God's saints. There is, uh, this is such a big deal that verse 3 is translated in other versions as there should not even be a hint of immorality among you. And uh, um, I've had couples together, uh, couples that are together come to me uh, at various times and uh, have said to me, well, it's okay that we're living together because we're not having sex. And to which my response, well, number one is, I don't believe you. And number two, if that were true, which is very unlikely, what is the perception? What are outsiders logically going to deduce from you living together? We shouldn't even have a hint of immorality happening among us. Now, don't understand me. Sex, misunderstand me. Sex is a good thing. It is designed by God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. But just like everything else, Satan takes the, the pleasures that belong in restricted areas and twists them. And the same is true with covetousness here. It's not wrong to desire things, but when that desire turns into greediness, then we've crossed a line. If, you're, uh, if something consumes your mind or you will pretty much do anything to get that thing, you're in a dangerous spot. So those vices here in, in verse 3 are more typical, but they're more private. And now in verse 4, he moves on to the more public things here. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. This phrase is, is relating to both behavior and to speech. Filthiness carries the idea of doing things that are that are shameful and embarrassing, those things that would bring uh, reproach upon the name of Christ, uh, uh, vices of the vernacular are the same way. Foolish talk, the word used there, refers to being indecent or dirty talk. It's just not referring to crass, um, 
speech that's filled with innuendos, but it does refer to swear words and foul language. And, and I get it. Sometimes there's the attitude of, well, I just want to be like one of the fellas so that they can see that being like being a Christian is, is just being a normal thing. But we're not called to be normal. We're called to be set apart. And yes, if you don't laugh at dirty jokes or swear at the other guys uh, like the other guys on the line, they might ridicule you as being puritanical. They might somehow uh, think that you have this holier-than-thou attitude. That's to be expected. But my guess is that more often than not, it's just way too easy for many of us to just join right in and be part of the crowd. So what's the remedy to this? Uh, with, when these things are to be put aside, there's often a gaping hole in our soul that wants to be filled. So what do we replace it with? Well, Paul says in, in verse 4 that we ought to be filled with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the thing that we should be uh, filling that with. Now, why would, be, why would being grateful be a remedy against these, these uh, vices? Well, I mean, being thankful, obviously, is uh, the, the appropriate response to God in all things. But thankfulness is also an incredible motivator for ali aligning our uh, lives around God and His will and His, uh, and His ways, His purposes, His ethics. If we see God as a faithful provider and give thanks for it, it'll be much harder to covet we can go through all the rest, but you get the point. Verse 5, he shifts his focus now by providing the grounding for why we ought to be mindful of working hard at getting rid of these things. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, let's be very clear. The Bible is consistent in telling us that when God saves us by his grace, through faith, we are his. And we are his forever and ever and ever and ever. He will not let us go. We can't slip through his fingers. However, engaging in habitual and persistent and intentional rebellion against God um, gives us reason to doubt that we have been saved in the first place. 1 John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Notice he doesn't say no one born of God sins anymore. That's not what he says. He says makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning that practice because he has been born of God. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we don't fight. It doesn't mean that temptations don't come our way. But if we find ourselves giving, over, giving ourselves over to these things without a fight, without a struggle, without a plan, and not really caring, we're in a dangerous place. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, 
lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience uh, received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, going back to our passage here in verse 6, Paul says, hey, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Now, he mentions the sons of disobedience back in chapter 2, but he brings them up again here. And he says, in other words, don't listen to anyone who doesn't take this seriously. Don't listen to yourself if you don't take this seriously. If anyone says or you say to yourself, you know what, this really isn't a big deal. None of this is, is really, this is all scare tactics. It's not that bad. It's not, God doesn't care that much about things. Don't listen to them. Put it away from you. When our conscience is on fire because of the conviction of sin, it wants nothing more than a bucket of sand or a bucket of water to quench that uh, conscience so it can forget about it. Don't do that. And not only should we not listen, but verse 7 says that we shouldn't even become partners with them. Why? Because bad company ruins good morals. Don't keep friends with those who aren't beneficial to your soul. You can associate with them. You can be on good terms with them. You can encourage them. You can witness to them. But you cannot, for the sake of your soul, let them into your heart. Why? Well, verse 8 says that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Did you read the semantics there? Notice he doesn't say that you, are, that you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. But now you are not in the light. You are light in the Lord. Darkness may be who you used to be, but not anymore. You are now light, so we need to abandon those old ways and behaviors and thoughts. But second, we need to embrace our new life in Christ. We need to embrace that new life. In the last part of verse 8, Paul returns to the familiar metaphor of walking. Uh, Paul uses the term walking seven times in this letter. There's only six chapters in this letter, and he uses this idea seven times. So you can see how important this idea of lifestyle, this idea of, of um, how you think about the world, this idea of how you carry yourself is incredibly important. And in verse 8, based on everything that was said previously, God commands us to walk as children of light. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. We are light, and we are to walk as light because, again, in verse 1, remember that we are to be imitators of God as His beloved children. Now, isn't it interesting that sometimes you can tell siblings are siblings just by looking at them, right? Say, my goodness, that person looks just like his brother or 
you know, maybe the sisters look to, you know, or maybe you run into people that um, you see as, uh, as children and you saw their parents as children. And you're like, man, that is a spitting image of, of that person's mom or that person's dad. Well, we all carry genetic things about us that have the traits of those that we have, uh, uh, that we have um, come from. And um, some of us might have the same hair or facial features or eyes or smile or whatever. That's what our DNA has. But what about our spiritual DNA? We are to resemble our Heavenly Father. We are to walk like Him. We are to look like Him in our character, in our, in our love, and in our walk, and in our worldview, and in our, in our ethics. We are to resemble Him who the Apostle John says uh, in um, 1 John 1.5 where he says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Can you imagine what that would be like? Verse 9 then roots uh, our walk by saying that fruit or the result of this light is found in all that is good and right and true. Why? Because everything about God is good and right and true. So we're to walk in light of who the Father is. Now in verse 10, Paul says that as children of light, we need to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And when we come to Christ, that old person is dead. We have this new life in Christ. Our spirit has been raised uh, from the dead. Uh, and to walk in that new life means that we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for our own pleasure anymore. You see, the person of the world asks, what is pleasing to me? And they seek after it, and they go after it, and they strive hard to get it. But the one who is in Christ asks, what is pleasing to God? And seeks after that. And as we get to know God better through his word, through prayer, through Christian community, it becomes more and more obvious what God wants. And what's pleasing to him is loving him and obeying him. So, so long gone are the days in which we operated on loving ourselves. And here to stay is loving God. We do what pleases him when we recognize wickedness. Uh, verse, uh, and we, in verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. Now we can pretty much, without explanation, go already know what it means to not take part in these uh, unfruitful works. But what does it mean to instead expose them? And I'm going to tell you what my answer is. I don't know. Because you open up any commentary on Ephesians. And just like uh, when you get two Baptists together, you get three opinions, right? There's, um, you know, one group that will say that this means that we need to be cultural sin sniffers and call out every single thing that's wicked and wrong and, and dark and dirty in this world. 
Some have said, no, 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 no. Rather, this means recognizing the, your own sin in your own life and, and confessing it and, uh, and being restored um, and repenting in that way. And still others have offered that we, we simply need to, within the church, present the pitfalls of, of sin. Expose those words of darkness so that you, you know where you're walking and what you're doing and so that you don't fall into these kinds of things. And uh, I'm kind of with them all. They all make sense, right? I mean, certainly there is a place for a prophetic voice in which um, the, the culture needs to hear. Pointing out the folly of our culture can have a sobering effect on people that may be being snatched out of the, the fire and the chaos of our world. We need that one child who recognizes that the emperor has no clothes on and calls it out so that other people can also say, ha, you're right, I never thought about it. So we need that. And of course we need to expose our sin or have our secret sin exposed. When you're in a dark room that... Um, that you don't see the dust in, but as soon as you, you open up the curtain and the sunbeams come shooting through, your room looks filthy because all you see are, are you know, little dust things flying all over. We need that exposed, and we need to deal with it. James 5.16 tells us to um, confess our sins to one another and pray for each other that we may be healed. And who would argue that it isn't right to point out pitfalls that we might fall into? If, if I see a patch of ice outside and I see one of my kids walking right toward it with their head up in the sky, I would be an unloving father if I didn't say, hey, there's ice right in front of you. You should probably watch out for that. It would be neglect on my part. And the same is true in our community of faith. If we see a brother or a sister in potential danger, it would do very well for us to gently and um, warmly um, and graciously warn them of the darkness that could be looming ahead. Paul says in verse 12 now, that it's shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. And that, that doesn't mean that we're not to talk about it. It doesn't mean that we, that we should uh, just let it be out there. Uh, you know, it, it, it is shameful. It is dark. So we don't, just, we don't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. Of course these things are awkward. Of course these things are taboo. It's shameful to even have to talk about these things. But it is it's curious to examine how much more shameful it is if we fall into them. It's better to talk about it, and it's better to get it out in the open before something serious happens. Preventative medicine is always the best way to ward off any potential health disasters. And when it comes to sin, the best preventative medicine that we can have is to get it out there. Let's acknowledge it. Let's, let's recognize it. And then let's protect each other through biblical community um, and, uh, or, or heal and restore those who have fallen into a pit and need to return through biblical counseling and community. This is where the church becomes the church. 
It's a family, and we're supposed to be here for each other through thick and thin. It's not just leaving a wounded animal to die on the side of the road. And that's where Paul was going when he wrote in verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Now, Paul wraps up this section here uh, by basically repeating his point that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of sin. In his life, he lived perfectly in our place. In his death, he died in our place. He took on the wrath of God upon himself so that we can go free. In his resurrection, he proved his victory over sin and death and provided our hope for resurrection as well, that this life is not the end. It is this gospel that God has chosen us for. It is this gospel by which we are saved. It is this gospel that we are made new. So why would we ever, ever want to go back to those old things? So he writes, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this is probably from an old Christian hymn that was used in the early church, but for for Paul's purposes, it makes a lot of sense. It is a spiritual wake-up call. It is Paul saying, some of us are spiritually sleeping, and we need that alarm clock to wake us up right now. Some of us are spiritually dead, and we need that light of Christ to raise us from the dead Awake and put off that old self. Stop living the double life and live holy for Christ and and His glory. I've been watching a lot of um, the show Hoarders lately. Have you ever seen that show before? If you haven't, uh, it's an interesting um, social uh, experiment. The show takes the audience into the homes of hoarders, people who collect so much stuff or don't get rid of stuff that you can't see the floor. Uh, There's no path to even get to a room. It's usually dirty and, and moldy and gross and this is what these people are living in. It's unsafe because they have to climb over garbage to get into another room. Many don't even have any working toilets because they haven't paid their water bill and their bathrooms are so full that they can't even get into their, their, their bathroom. I saw an episode this past week where a man had to sleep in his car because his house was so full of stuff. It's disgusting and it's disturbing. And the show has a psychologist who comes and specializes in hoarding. I didn't know there was a such thing. And a cleanup crew who specializes in biohazard cleanup. And without fail, the same thing happens in every single episode. They realize their need for change. They look around and they, they see the result of years of neglect. They say, I don't even know how in the world I got myself to be in this place, but something needs to change. I need help. Some of them have already had their houses condemned, and they can't live in their house until 
it gets cleaned up again. And from the get-go, these folks seem motivated. Uh, they want to clean up. They want to change. But as soon as the cleanup crew starts coming in and asking them questions of what needs to go and what needs to stay, well, nothing needs to go. Everything needs to stay. It just needs a little organization. That's all that it needs. They won't give up anything. They're so attached to even some of their garbage that they get angry at the people for even thinking that they should throw away a newspaper from 70 years ago that is full of mold and smells really bad. Even at the threat of condemnation, imprisonment in some cases, uh, disease and death, when those things are brought up, they would rather stay in their filth than meet and meet their fates than get rid of that 50-year-old newspaper or that used uh, pop can or pop bottle from 1985. Throughout every episode, the psychologist tries to get them to wake up, see the light of their ways, and to allow for change. And I'm going to tell you, not every episode ends up the way that you want it to. Sometimes they are so stuck in their ways and their refusal to get rid of these things that they had just have to say, we're calling the county. This is all that we can do. Friends, the same is true in our Christian lives. Some of us are spiritual hoarders. We can look around and, and, and see how we're living. We can see those things that are obvious as well as some of those things that we're hiding and we may say, how in the world did I get to where I'm at? How in the world did I persist in this or that? I need change. But when presented with what needs to be done and the possibility of throwing away that old self and those old sin patterns, we think, nope. Can't do that. I can't get rid of it. It's too precious to me. I like it too much. It might be useful one day. We're so attached to those things that even at the threat of not entering the kingdom of God, we won't give them up. Friends, there is no room for Christ in your life when those old sin and patterns have taken over. Christ is calling you to wake up. Get rid of that old person Put him in the dumpster. Light the match. Set it ablaze. Get it out of here. There's too much at stake. Put your trust fully in him. Let him give you his righteousness. And then start the process of becoming who you are, living as light.